If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 14. Believe it or not, we are on week 27 in our study in the book of Romans. It's taken us 27 weeks to get this far, and it looks like we're probably going to wrap it up around 29 weeks. So we're headed towards the end of Romans, and I don't know about you, but I have absolutely loved the study of Romans. And uh, I really feel like it, is, it has been a gospel-centric message week after week after week that has shown us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is not by our works, and we are justified because of what he has done and nothing that we've done of ourselves. And so it's a great reminder that as we've gone through the first 11 chapters, that it was over and over and over. This is what Christ has done for you. And now, as we get into 12 and following, it is this is how you respond to the gospel truth. And we are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It's our reasonable act of worship. And so that has been the call. And the, the fact that we are simultaneously sinful but saved is the work of God in, in our place. And so uh, present your bodies. Present your bodies. Surrender. Give over. Relinquish your grip. And place yourselves at God's disposal for him to use your life for his glory and for his honor. This is your reasonable response, that if he gave his life for you, you should give all of your life to him as a living sacrifice, meaning that you're going to have to lay aside your wants and your desires, and you're going to have to lay aside your selfishness, and you're going to have to say, I'm going to live sacrificial, and sometimes that's going to put me in awkward situations and awkward conversations, and I'm going to talk to people in ways that I never knew that I would talk to them because Jesus Christ has led me to that point where I share the gospel truth with people. And so what a remarkable thought that we get to respond to the gospel as a living sacrifice that is not conformed to the pattern of this world. We don't allow that the, the world system is trying to mold us and shape us into an, a, a thought process and an image just like its own, but we are, we are not allowing that to happen. We are unified in our mission to glorify God. We are given different gifts for the edification of the body. A living sacrifice loves genuinely, not just generally. It hates and it is horrified by what is evil. It loves and serves zealously. It is hospitable and it is stable in its faith. It seeks to use words to bless and not to curse others. It rejoices with those and weeps with others. It seeks to live peaceably with others as far as it's up to itself. It gives generously and seeks to do what is good. It honors the authorities that are placed in its life. A living sacrifice loves neighbor as itself and lives properly in this world. This is what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, and we're going to continue in that today as we get into Romans chapter 14, and we talk about unity in the community of faith. And I'm just going to give you a warning. This is one of those messages that's either going to liberate you or frustrate you. And, and really, I, I hope there's some middle ground there, but it looks like it's either going to liberate you or frustrate you, and I have no idea what's going to happen because that's based on your conscience. And so it is my goal to preach God's word as clearly and as accurately and as, as uh, non-culturally biased as possible and to give you the truth of what God's word says. So if we are living sacrifices and we're offering our lives to the Lord, what happens if we are convicted by certain things and other people are not? What happens when we feel the liberty to engage in something and one of our brothers and sisters feels like they don't have the liberty to engage in that thing? What about the gray areas, as some people would call them, of Christianity? How am I to befriend, have unity, 
and be in Christian community with other people who don't share the same personal opinions that I do? What happens when people from all different cultures, backgrounds, ethnicities, traditions, and temptations gather together under the banner of Christ? Well, they gather and they have different opinions. That's what happens. And so as you gather together today and you look around at one another, you're not going to have the same opinions about things as other people. And so it can cause differing opinions and arguments over things in spirituality. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list off some things just to make it super uncomfortable for you. You know, we get together and we have different opinions on what day should we worship on? What foods are acceptable and not acceptable? What about drinking wine? Should we abstain from alcohol altogether or not? What about dressing up for Halloween? Isn't that bad? What about supporting businesses like Disney or Target or Starbucks? Let me give you a little bit of research that I did here. There's a difference between primary separation and secondary separation. Primary separation is the fact that I primarily am going to separate myself from things that I know that are evil. Secondary separation is trying to avoid the secondary party that I think might be hanging out something that is evil. If we're black and white in our effort to abstain from all secondary issues, secondary separation, we would have to leave the planet. We're to be in the world and not of the world. If we hold to the cancel culture, even in a Christian mindset, this Christian cancel culture conquest that I won't have anything to do with these things because I don't agree with that, it eventually becomes unsustainable. So if I pay a merchant for food or clothing or entertainment, and then that merchant takes the money and uses it in some ungodly way or supports some ungodly agenda, we're not responsible for how they use their money. We're responsible for how we use our money. It's kind of like what I mentioned last week about honoring the government. We are to pay our taxes, whether we agree or not with what all the tax dollars go to. What about watching certain movies and certain shows, reading certain books like Harry Potter, the Smurfs? Uh, I got you back. Okay. MTV. What about what clothes you wear? What about tucking your shirt in when you're preaching? There you go. See, these are all disputable matters that really are not black and white, right or wrong, but matters of opinion and conscience, and we all hold very strong views on this. Am I right? But yet we're all gathered together under the banner of Christ to honor him and to love one another genuinely. And it gets difficult. The Romans were facing the same difficulty. These Roman Christians, they were both Jews and Gentiles, gathering together with all different types of traditions, all different types of upbringing, all different types of previous sins that were uh, in their lives. And now they're coming together, and they're just this mixed bag of different people, and they had forgotten about the unity that they share in Christ and begun to point fingers over disputable matters of what's right and what's wrong. 
Some of the people in the church believed that they had freedom to eat all kinds of food without restriction. It's unclear whether they were uh, talking about the restrictions that were Jewish law or if these were the meats that were referred to in 1 Corinthians that were offered to pagan idols. But some felt like they could eat all kinds of food, all kinds of meat, and others felt like they couldn't do that. Some felt like they needed to hold on to certain ceremonial days from their upbringing. And if they didn't worship the Lord on those days, then they were sinning because they had always held those traditions. But others didn't believe that. And so now they begin to argue with one another about disputable matters. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul references this as well, 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, while he not, while he not be encouraged, will he not be encouraged in his conscience, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, I will never eat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul here clearly says that it's not just about righting wrong. Can you eat or can you not eat? Can you participate or not participate? It's in how you treat your brother, how you love the person who's next to you, and thus causing someone to enter back into sin, you're not only sinning, but you're sinning against Christ. You're sinning against the one who gave us liberty and freedom and grace. So the law of love for a brother supersedes our personal law of liberty. Again, in Colossians, it talks about the disputable matters of certain days. It says, first Colossians, that is a typo. There's only one, okay? There's only one. That's what happens when you paste and copy your slides. Sometimes you miss it. Um, chapter 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We're not to judge one another either way. The problem here that Paul's running into is that the strong Christians were looking down on the weaker Christians. And the weak Christians were condemning and judging the stronger Christians. The church was caught up in the sins of judgmentalism, legalism, and elevating their opinionism. <laughs> it's easy for the church to fall into that trap, isn't it? Isn't it easy to fall into the trap of criticizing people who don't share the same opinion as you? Who don't vote the same as you? Hmm. Judging others because they don't share your cultural bias. Maybe they weren't raised in the same area as you. They don't share your religious traditions that you've always participated in. And they certainly don't share your personal convictions. It's easily to fall prey to the trap of dividing over debatable issues. So let's pray for God's grace as we go through the scripture today.
Father, we ask for your grace. Father, we ask for a tenderness in our hearts that we would be receptive to your word and that by it you would penetrate even between soul and body, that you would convict us in a way that if we are holding things that are not an issue to debate over or divide over, that we would relinquish those opinions for your glory and for the health of your church. I pray over this church, Father, that you would unite us in Christ under the gospel, that all the secondary issues would not be issues at all. I pray, Father, as we get into your word, give us, give us wisdom, give us understanding, and give us joy in the spirit. In Christ's name, amen. First thing, a living sacrifice stops quarreling over opinions. Wow. <laughs> If you're going to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, you're going to stop quarreling over opinions. Let's read chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who was weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully conv convicted in his own mind, convinced in his own mind. And one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is God's word. Weak in the faith. The word weak in the faith here means that there's a sensitive conscience. There's a sickness in condition. And it doesn't mean that it's weak in the flesh because it doesn't eat protein. Get it? Okay, because it just means that it's weak in conscience. And these conditions are imposed on, on that person by outer forces. Either they're weak by legalism or they're sickened by former sins. David Guzik gives the analogy, and he says that the weakness could suggest four spiritual parallels. There are many reasons why someone may be weak. This may be because they're a babe in Christ. Babies are weak. They may be sick or diseased by legalism, a heart that believes that you can gain God's favor by doing certain things or by abstaining from doing other things. They may be malnourished by a lack of good teaching. Religious leaders who teach culturally bind people's consciences, or they may lack exercise, needing exhortation. Your faith is weak because you haven't worked it out. 
He says not to quarrel over opinions. The word opinions is literally deliberating and questioning what is true. There are matters of the conscience. These are not matters of Scripture. Tim Keller would say it this way, a matter of conscience is a practice about which God has not specifically spoken in his word. He has not clearly forbidden it nor clearly condemned it. It is possible to move to one of two wrong extremes when it comes to disputable matters. We must guard against thinking that almost every area is a disputable matter of conscience and against the view that hardly any area is a disputable matter of conscience. Verse 2 says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So here's the context that we can see that also applies to us today. It's that the first century church was convinced, many in the first century church were convinced, that being a vegetarian was a sign of spiritual maturity because not only were they refraining from eating meat that had been offered to an idol, but now they were completely removing any form of that meat so that they could prove that they were abstaining. So the abstinence and the restraint they believed were signs of spiritual strength. Yet Paul here calls them weak. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says this, Love covers a multitude of sins as well as a multitude of misunderstandings and weak theology. The basic principle that unfolds here is one of loving sensitivity. If my brother believes that drinking a glass of wine is a sin, I ought not to try to coax him into drinking a glass of wine. That would be an attempt to entice him to violate his conscience. The violation of one's conscience, even if it is a misinformed conscience, is a serious matter. That does not mean we should stand back and allow our weaker brother to make his scruple the law of the church. Paul makes clear that his teaching and his teaching that though we are to be sensitive, loving, and kind to the weaker brother, we ought never to allow him to exercise tyranny over the church. So what R.C. Sproul is explaining here is, is that though we have differing opinions on things, the stronger brother should not impose his strength on the weaker brother, and the weaker brother should not impose his conviction on the stronger brother. And that should not be how the church functions, and the church should not be putting it in their bylaws and forcing that opinion on other people. We should be holding to a scriptural truth. I love teaching this because we all look super uncomfortable. Christianity is not about eating and drinking, he goes on. Drinking alcohol is a controversial topic in the Christian community. Many argue that Jesus never drank wine and that when the Pharisees called Jesus a wine-bibber or a drunkard, they were distorting the truth. They also argue that the wine Jesus made for the wedding of Cana was unfermented. Arguing that way, however, is a hopeless, torturous treatment of the biblical text. But it happens when people come to the text with a cultural bias. Many are convinced that total abstinence is the only spiritual way. But we, we learn no such thing from the scriptures. Not from the Old Testament or from the celebration of the Passover. If we were to do a word study of the word wine in the Bible, we would see that it is the real thing. God sanctified it and warned against drinking too much of it. 
because getting drunk is a sin. God did not give that warning against drunkenness to people drinking grape juice. This view is offensive to many people. To all such who are convinced that they cannot drink wine, then they must never let wine touch their lips because for them, it is a sin. For others, it's not. Our brother ought not to judge us, and we ought not to judge our brother. That was R.C. Sproul. One person, verse 5, esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is Paul's plea to the church. Stop judging others based on on your opinions. Don't get upset with someone if you see them cutting grass on Sunday. People should be elevated above opinions. So the church should be full of three things. Christian love. Let love be genuine. Genuine brotherly affection. Christian liberty. There should be grace and there should be mercy in the diversity of the church for its unity. In Christian, in Christ's lordship, Jesus, Jesus loved us, he showed grace to us, and he is the rightful judge over us. We are to be in submission to the Lord. And when we have an opinion or a conviction, that's between us and the Lord. And we should submit in fear to him and not to the fear of others. In their judgment. As J. Vernon McGee put it, our conduct is not gauged by the food spread out on the table, but by the fact that our lives are spread out before him. A living sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 10 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Number two, y'all look super uncomfortable. Here we go. Number two, living sacrifice starts pursuing peace and mutual upbuilding. Let's pick up there in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean if for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that is the end of the chapter. Let us not pass judgment. Let me clear this up real quick. This does not mean that we accept sin in the lives of brothers and sisters. I, I don't know if you've heard people say, well, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And then you want to say, yeah, he will, right? Like, that's a sin. You can't do that. That's in Scripture. So when it comes to actual sins that we know are black and white issues in Scripture, that, that doesn't mean that we're not passing judgment. It means that we do walk with one another, call one another out when we see sin entering the life of a brother and sister. But as he talks about these disputable matters, he's saying don't pass judgment because someone has a differing opinion than you. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. When it comes to these things, you decide to put people over your opinions, and so you would never do anything that would cause them to stumble or fall back into sin. John MacArthur says that Paul tells us we do have a decision to make, and he puts it in the form of the aorist imperative, which calls for action. Our decision should be not only to stop judging one another, but also to stop putting stumbling blocks in the way of others. That has to be the preoccupation of our lives. Picture a brother or a sister walking along a path of a Christian life, then someone puts something in their path to cause them to fall. We don't want to stop a fellow believer in the spiritual progress by causing them to fall into sin. Several months ago, on our Wednesday night uh, men's study group, we were going through a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And Jerry Bridges is writing this, and he, he gives an illustration in it. And he says, a number of years ago, a friend who was a new Christian was invited to a roller skating party with a Christian youth group. He decided not to go. Because before becoming a Christian, he frequently made pickups at the roller rink. Evidently, this was written a long time ago. <laughs> he felt that at this time in his growth, to return to the environment would tend to stimulate his old lustful desires. So he decided to flee and make no provision for the flesh. I love this illustration. Because I, I think when we, I mentioned all these other ones that make us uncomfortable, I would venture to say there's not one of us in here that goes, oh, roller skating, that's of the devil, right? <laughs> like, that's probably not going to be one that's on the top of our list. But for this guy, coming out of a lifestyle that he knows, like, if I go in this area, it's going to cause me to stumble. It's going to be a stumbling block for me. I cannot go there and I can't do this. Even though the Christian youth group was going. But can you imagine the other believers in the youth group going, oh, come on, man, it's no big deal. Everybody, everybody goes to the roller skating rink. It, it's not a big deal. You can do it. Not if it goes against your conscience. Not if it's going to lead you back into a path of sin. So we as believers who may not feel convicted over roller skating need to be weary of the one who might be convicted over roller skating that we would never do anything that would cause them to stumble back into sin or to fall away from God. He says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
but it is unclean if anyone thinks it's unclean. This is a remarkable statement that is important for a theological understanding when it comes to food and drink. The object itself is not evil or unclean. It's how it's used. It's how it's abused that determines whether or not it is a sin or unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're, not, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In Acts chapter 10, we see a, a pivotal point in the life of the early church. It reads this way in 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approached the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Every hunter's favorite verse, right? But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This moment ushered in a freedom that Jewish believers had not experienced as it pertains to the dietary restrictions, but it also calls for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. Up to this point, the Israelites had strict dietary laws, laws intended to set them apart from all the other nations, both outwardly and inwardly. This distinction was now complete in the new covenant by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So up to this point, they had held all these dietary views that if you eat these things, you are unclean. Jesus once questioned about things that are unclean in Mark chapter 7, 7, uh, 7, 14 through 23 said, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declares all food, foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Peter, knowing the truth, having heard it from Christ, and then having seen a vision, would falter would go back towards trying to keep dietary restrictions in the law because he was afraid of what others would say about him. And Paul confronted him to his face. We read about that in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It is not a matter of eating and drinking. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes peace and mutual upbuilding. Righteousness. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. An alien righteousness, as, as Martin put it, Martin Luther put it. An imputed righteousness that's not from our good works, it's not from what we do or don't do, it's not based on our behavior, it's based on Christ and what he has done for us. That's why Jesus was saying, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek Christ. The question is, is your main pursuit Christ? Christ in your place, Christ in your life, Christ in your actions, Christ in your attitudes. Or is your pursuit in, of Christianity about some behavioral management, some rule following, some self-justification over mutual upbuilding of the body? If we start to focus in on what I do and I don't do to be right before God, we have missed the gospel. And as Paul said to Peter, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You're trying to manage your Christianity. It's about peace. Not only the peace that we have from God through Jesus Christ taking the cup of wrath for our sin, but also the peace that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that we have differing opinions, but we are all one family, joined together with different gifts and different calls on our life, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, others, you. We've said that before. I stole it from somebody. I can't remember who. Joy, Jesus first. Other second, yourself last. This is what the kingdom of God is about. A pursuit of Christ. Jesus Christ and him alone. Seeking his righteousness. Peace with others. That you put others before yourself and you come last. And that's when you find real joy. Do not, for the sake of food, verse 20, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you are more concerned about expressing your opinions about food and drink or clothing or entertainment than you are about the spiritual well-being of your brother and sister in Christ, you might be destroying the work of God. If you're more committed to your theological agenda than you are promoting in and living out a biblical truth in community, 
then you may be destroying the work of God. If you're more committed to forming a coup or a committee of people that think like you, act like you, are convicted like you, and cast judgment on others like you, you are destroying the work of God in the lives of believers. Imposing our personal freedoms on others is wrong. Requiring others to follow our personal opinions is wrong. We are to be about the mutual upbuilding of the body. So finally, number three, a living sacrifice sees his obligation to his neighbor. Let's look at the first seven verses of 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with the Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We see the community of faith emphasized in Paul's writings here. He says, you have an obligation not to please yourselves, but to please his neighbor for his good and for his building him up. We have an obligation to those who are around us. And we get this obligation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus did not find pleasure in doing what he wanted, but in doing what the Father had called him to do and in what helped others find a true relationship with God. This is a simple yet challenging call to simply put your neighbor before yourself. To put people over your opinions. Even William Newell writes this, Christ never looked after himself. The whole world knows this. The foxes have holes, the birds of the heaven have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Yet his whole life, from early morning till late at night, and often into the night, was occupied in ministry to others. The constant drawing upon him by the multitudes, upon his time, his love, his teaching, his healing, was a marvelous proof they could count on the absolute absence of self-pleasing in himself. Jesus gives us the example of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. And the only way for us to be a living sacrifice is through Christ. Through Christ. So a living sacrifice sets aside its selfish opinions and divisions for the glory of God and for the strengthening of other believers. Church, I challenge you today not to force your opinion on others, not to argue over disputable matters, but to pursue Christ with a whole heart. Pursue Him, not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those who are around you. 